You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey gang, how's everyone doing? Welcome back to Radio Free Oleander's Oleander Book Club, yeah! As I've said in the past, it's a continuation of Black Clock Audio Tales and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Now we've got David Heath helping us out, and uh, yeah, this is the book portion. And this week we are doing a story by H.G. Wells and a story by Robert E. Howard. So, hold on to your hats and listen to that. Remember, you can always rate, review, subscribe, wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to give us a shout-out, if you like podcasts, if you want to share this stuff, let, let people know. Uh, we're KZOM, 11.30 a.m. on the Facebook, and we are just PGTTCM on Twitter and Instagram. I think we're still PGTTCM or Radio Free Oleander, one of those. If you look, you'll find us. PGTTCM is the production company. Black Clock Audio Tales, not Black Clock Audio Tales, I'm sorry. Radio Free Oleander is the show. So check us out and check out these stories. Uh, We have, as I said, we've got a, what do you call it? Uh, We've got The Red Room by H.G. Wells. And then we have, I believe, uh, The Skulls in the Stars, I think. I, I, I believe. Um, and the skulls and the stars, when you listen to it, now, now, ch- check me if I'm wrong, you know, contact me on Facebook or Twitter or contact Dave. And if, if it says what I think it says, that's kind of confusing. Um, there is but one road to Twerka Town. Um, yeah, I mean... I don't know if they're saying Twerker Town, but I'm thinking some other kind of story, but hey. We're doing ghost stories, we're doing horror stories this month. It is the end of October, and it's spookily dookily out. And we hope that you get all the kind of candies that you like, and if you don't like candies, you get the stuff that uh, you want to consume, whether it be video, whether it be stories, whether it be audio. We're helping out with the audio. I wish we could give you candy. I wish you guys could give me candy. You know what candy I love? I love Reese's. I love Reese's peanut butter cups. I love peanut butter and chocolate. I don't like other candy. I'm like, blah. It's not dark chocolate. It's not sweetened peanut butter that's kind of salty. I don't want it. Um, no, that's that's not true. I also like uh, Almond Joy and Mounds, but hey, that's me. All right. Here we go with that story. The Red Room by H.G. Wells. I can assure you, said I, that it would take a very tangible ghost to frighten me, and I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. I, she broke in. In eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see, when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see the sorrow for. I half suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence 
I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room and caught a glimpse of myself, abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness and the queer old mirror at the end of the room. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight, I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm once more. I heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside, and the door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by a single crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half-averted, hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily, and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. I said, <laughs> it's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm when the coughing had ceased for a while. It's my own choosing, I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time, and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and splutter again. Why don't you drink? said the man with the withered arm, pushing the bear towards him. The man with the shade poured out a glass bowl with a shaky arm that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his actions as he pulled and drank. I must confess. I had scarce expected these grotesque custodians. There is to my mind something inhuman in Sinothi, something crouching and atrovistic. The human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable, with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. If, said I, you will show me to this hunted room of yours, I will make myself comfortable there. The old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me, and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from under the shade, but no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. If, I said a little louder, if you will show me to this hunted room of yours, I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me. There is a candle on the slab outside the door, said the man with the withered arm looking at my feet as he addressed me. But if you're going to the Red Room tonight, this night of all nights, said the old woman, you go alone. Very well, I answered. And which way do I go? You go along the passage for a bit, said he, until you come to a door. And through that is a spiral staircase. And halfway up, that is a landing and another door covered with baies. Go through that and down the long corridor to the end. And the Red Room is on your left, up the steps. Have I got that right? I said, and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. And are you really going? Said the man with the shade, looking at me again for the third time, with that queer and natural tilting of the face. This night of all nights, said the old woman. It is what I came for, I said, and moved towards the door. As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table, so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door, I turned and looked at them, and saw they were all close together. 
dark against the firelight, staring at me over their shoulders with an intent expression on their ancient faces. Good night, I said, setting the door open. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in and walked down a chilly, echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, and a deep-toned, old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered, affected me in spite of my efforts to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours, less certain, an age when omens and witches were credible, and ghosts beyond denying. Their very existence was spectral, the cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains. The ornaments and conveniences of the rooms about them were ghostly. The thoughts of vanished men were still hunted rather than participated in the world of today. But with an effort, I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, draughty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and one fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancy I heard. Then, satisfied of the absolute silence, I pushed open the baize-covered door and stood in the corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or silvery illumination. Everything was in its place. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of eighteen months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight. I was about to advance, and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me by the corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling, and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. I stood ready for half a minute, perhaps. Then, with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver, I advanced, only to discover that a game and aid, an eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerves, and a porcelain Chinaman on the bull table, whose head rocked silently as I passed them, scarcely startled me. The door to the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the gamadade in the moonlight and opened the door of the red room rather hastily, with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the landing. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, the great red room of Lorien Castle, in which the young duke had died, or rather in which he had begun his dying, for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. And there were other and older stories that clung to the room. Back to the half-credible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife 
and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her. And looking around that large shattery room with its shattery window bays, its recesses and alcoves, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darkness. My candle was a little tongue of flame in its vastness that fell to pierce the opposite end of the room and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light. I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place at once and dispel the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained hold upon me. After satisfying myself of the fastening of the door, I began to walk about the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows before closing the shutters, leant forward and looked up at the blackness of the wide chimney, and tapped the dark oak paneling for any secret opening. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantelshift too were more candles and china candlesticks. And these I lit one after the other. The fire was laid. An unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper. And I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver. And when it was burning well, I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me. And on this I lay my revolver ready to hand. My precise examination had done me good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and the crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove at the end in particular had that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. At last, to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position. By this time, I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason there was no adequate cause for the condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated quite unreversely that nothing supernatural could happen, and to pass the time I began to string some rhymes together, and goes by fashion, of the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason, I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and hunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The somber reds and blacks of the room troubled me. Even with the seven candles, the place was merely dim. The one in the alcove flared in a drought, and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring casting about for a remedy. I recalled the candles I had seen in the passage, and with a slight effort, walked out into the moonlight, carrying a candle and leaving the door open, and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in various knick-knacks of china, which which the room was sparsely adorned, lit in place where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window's recesses, until at last my seventeenth candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came, I could warn him not to trip over them. 
The room was now quite brightly illuminated. There was something very cheery and reassuring in these little streaming flames, and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a reassuring sense of the passage of time. Even with that, however, the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me. It was after midnight that the candle in the alcove suddenly went out, and the black shadow springs back in its place. I did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. By Jove, I said aloud, that draught a strong one. And taking the matches from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike. And as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. Odd, I said. Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness? I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle on the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out. And almost immediately, his companion followed it. There was no mistake about it. The flame vanished, as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood, gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step towards me. This won't do, I said I, and first one, then another candle on the mantelshelf followed. What's up? I cried with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow. At that, the candle in the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. Steady on, I said. These candles are wanted. Speaking with a half-hysterical fasciousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantle candlesticks, my hands trembled so that the twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox. As the mantle emerged from darkness again, two candles at a remoter end of the window were eclipsed. But with the same match, I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for the moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then, in a volley, there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whether to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. Then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this, I avoided the delay of striking matches. But for all, that steady process of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me. First, a step gained on this side of me, and then on that. It was like a ragged storm cloud sweeping out the stars. Now, and then, one returned for a minute, and was lost again. I was now almost frantic with the horror of coming darkness, and my self-possession deserted me. I leapt, panting and disheveled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against that remorseless advance. I bruised myself on the thigh against the table. I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked a cloth from the table in my fall. My candle rolled away from me, and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly, this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement, and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that starved off the shadows from me. The fire, 
Of course, I could thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps towards the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished, the glow vanished, the reflections rushed together and vanished, and as I thrust the candle between the bars, darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision, and crushed the last vestiges of reason from my brain. The candle fell from my hand, I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and, lifting my voice, screamed with all my might, once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and, with my head bowed and my arms over my face, made a run for the door. But I have forgotten the exact position of the door and struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture. I have a vague memory of battering myself to and fro in the darkness of a cramped struggle, and of my own wild crying as I darted to and fro, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age of my last frantic effort to keep my footing. And then... I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and a man with a withered arm was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I turned to the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, pouring out some drops of medicine from a blue field into a glass. Where am I? I asked. I seem to remember you, and yet I cannot remember who you are. They told me then, and I heard of the hunted red room, as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. It was very slowly I recovered my memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man, that the room is haunted? He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder but as one who grieves for a broken friend. Yes, said I, the room is haunted. And you have seen it, and we who have lived here all our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who... No, said I, it is not. I told you so, said the old lady, with the glass in her hand. It is this poor young countess who is frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghost of Countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all, but worse, far worse. Well, they said, the worst of all things that hunt poor mortal man, said I, and that is, in all its nakedness, fear, fear that will not have light or sound that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. Then the man with the shade sighed and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness to put such a curse upon a woman. It looks there always. You can feel it, even in the daytime. 
even of a bright summer's day. And the hangings and the curtains keeping behind you however you face about. In the dusk, it creeps along the corridor and follows you so that you dare not turn. There is fear in that room of hers, black fear, and there will be so long as this house of sin endures. End of USA, the USA, September 2007. Wells. Skulls in the Stars by Robert E. Howard. One, there are two roads to Torkertown. One, the shorter and more direct route, leads across a barren upland moor, and the other, which is much longer, winds its tortuous way in and out among the hummocks and quagmires of the swamps, skirting the low hills to the east. It was a dangerous and tedious trail, so Solomon Cain halted in amazement when a breathless youth from the village he had just left overtook him and implored him, for God's sake, to take the swamp road. The swamp road, Cain stared at the boy. He was a tall, gaunt man, was Solomon Cain. His darkly pallid face and deep-brooding eyes made more somber by the drab, puritanical garb he affected. Yes, sir, tis safer, the youngster answered to his surprised exclamation. Then the moor road must be haunted by Satan himself, for your townsmen warned me against traversing the other. Because of the quagmire, sir, that you might not see in the dark. You had better return to the village and continue your journey in the morning, sir. Taking the swamp road? Yes, sir. Cain shrugged his shoulders and shook his head. The moon rises almost as soon as twilight dies. By its light, I can reach Torkertown in a few hours across the moor. Sir, you had better not. No one ever goes that way. There are no houses at all upon the moor, while in the swamp there is the house of old Ezra, who lives there all alone since his maniac cousin, Gideon, wandered off and died in the swamp and was never found. And old Ezra, though a miser, would not refuse you lodging, should you decide to stop until morning. Since you must go, you had better go the swamp road. Cain eyed the boy piercingly. The lad squirmed and shuffled his feet. Since the moor road is so dour to wayfarers, said the Puritan, why did not the villagers tell me the whole tale, instead of vague mouthings? Men like not to talk of it, sir. We hoped that you would take the swamp road after the men advised you to. But when we watched and saw that you turned not at the forks, they sent me to run after you and beg you to reconsider. Name of the devil, exclaimed Cain sharply, the unaccustomed oath showing his irritation. The swamp road and the moor road. What is it that threatens me, and why should I go miles out of my way and risk the bogs and mires? Sir, said the boy, dropping his voice and drawing closer, we be simple villagers who like not to talk of such things lest foul fortune befall us. But the moor road is a way accursed and hath not been traversed by any of the countryside for a year or more. It is death to walk those moors by night as hath been found by some score of unfortunates. Some foul whore haunts the way and claims men for his victims. So, and what is this thing like? No man knows. None has ever seen it and lived. But latefarers have heard terrible laughter far out on the fen, and men have heard the horrid shrieks of its victims. Sir, in God's name, return to the village. There pass the night, and tomorrow take the swamp trail to Torkertown.
Far back in Cain's gloomy eyes, a scintillant light began to glimmer, like a witch's torch glinting under fathoms of cold gray ice. His blood quickened. Adventure, the lure of life risk and drama. Not that Cain recognized his sensations as such. He sincerely considered that he voiced his real feelings when he said, These things be deeds of some power of evil. The lords of darkness have laid a curse upon the country. A strong man is needed to combat Satan and his might. Therefore I go, who have defied him many times. Sir, the boy began, then closed his mouth as he saw the futility of argument. He only added, the corpses of the victims are bruised and torn, sir. He stood there at the crossroads, sighing regretfully as he watched the tall, rangy figure swinging up the road that led toward the moors. The sun was setting as Cain came over the brow of the low hill which debauched into the upland fen. Huge and blood-red, it sank down behind the sullen horizon of the moors, seeming to touch the rank grass with fire. So for a moment, the watcher seemed to be gazing out across a sea of blood. The dark shadows came gliding from the east, the western blaze faded, and Solomon Cain struck out boldly in the gathering darkness. The road was dim from disuse, but was clearly defined. Cain went swiftly, but wearily, sword and pistols at hand. Stars blinked out, and night winds whispered among the grass like weeping specters. The moon began to rise, lean and haggard, like a skull among the stars. Then suddenly, Cain stopped short. From somewhere in front of him sounded a strange and eerie echo, or something like an echo. Again, this time louder, Cain started forward again. Were his senses deceiving him? No. Far out, there pealed a whisper of frightful slaughter. And again, closer this time. No human being ever laughed like that. There was no mirth in it, only hatred and horror and soul-destroying terror. Cain halted. He was not afraid, but for a second he was almost unnerved. Then, stabbing through that awesome laughter, came the sound of a scream that was undoubtedly human. Cain started forward, increasing his gait. He cursed the elusive lights and flickering shadows which veiled the moor in the rising moon and made accurate sight impossible. The laughter continued, growing louder, as did the screams. Then sounded faintly the drum of frantic human feet. Cain broke into a run. Some human was being hunted to death out there on the fen, and by what manner of horror God only knew. The sound of flying feet halted abruptly, and the screaming rose unbearably, mingled with other sounds unnameable and hideous. Evidently, the man had been overtaken, and Cain, his flesh crawling, visualized some ghastly fiend of the darkness crouching on the back of its victim, crouching and tearing. Then the noise of a terrible and short struggle came clearly through the abysmal silence of the night, and footfalls began again, but stumbling and uneven. The screaming continued, but with a gasping gurgle. The sweat stood cold on Cain's forehead and body. This was heaping horror on horror in an intolerable manner. God, for a moment's clear light, the frightful drama was being enacted within a very short distance of him to judge from the ease with which the sounds reached him. But this hellish half-light veiled all in shifting shadows, so that the moors appeared a haze of blurred illusions, and stunted trees and bushes seemed like giants. Cain shouted, striving to increase the speed of his advance. The shrieks of the unknown, 
broke into a hideous, shrill squealing. Again there was the sound of a struggle, and then, from the shadows of the tall grass, a thing came reeling, a thing that had once been a man, a gore-covered, frightful thing that fell at Cain's feet and writhed and groveled and raised its terrible face to the rising moon, and gibbered and yammered and fell down again and died in its own blood. The moon was up now, and the light was better. Cain bent above the body, which lay stark in its unnameable mutilation, and he shuddered a rare thing for him who had seen the deeds of the Spanish Inquisition and the witch-finders. Some wayfarer, he supposed. Then, like a hand of cold ice on his spine, he was aware that he was not alone. He looked up, his cold eyes piercing the shadows whence the dead man had staggered. He saw nothing, but he knew, he felt, that other eyes gave back his stare, terrible eyes, not of this earth. He straightened and drew a pistol, waiting. The moonlight spread like a lake of pale blood over the moor, and trees and grasses took on their proper sizes. The shadows melted, and Cain saw. At first he thought it only a shadow of mist, a wisp of more fog that swayed in the tall grass before him. He gazed. More illusion, he thought. Then the thing began to take on shape, vague and indistinct. Two hideous eyes flamed at him eyes which held all the stark horror which had been the heritage of man since the fearful dawn ages. Eyes frightful and insane, with an insanity transcending earthly insanity. The form of the thing was misty and vague, a brain-shattering tragedy on the human form, like, yet horribly unlike. The grass and bushes beyond showed clearly through it. Cain felt the blood pound in his temples, yet he was as cold as ice. How such an unstable being as that which wavered before him could harm a man in a physical way was more than he could understand. Yet the red horror at his feet gave mute testimony that the fiend could act with terrible material effect. Of one thing Cain was sure. There would be no hunting of him across the dreary moors, no screaming and fleeing to be dragged down again and again. If he must die, he would die in his tracks, wounds in front. Now a vague and grisly mouth gaped wide, and the demonic laughter again shrieked, but soul-shaking in its nearness. And in the midst of feet threat of doom, Cain deliberately leveled his long pistol and fired. A maniacal yell of rage and mockery answered the report, and the thing came at him like a flying sheet of smoke, long, shadowy arms stretched to drag him down. Cain moving with the dynamic speed of a famished wolf, fired the second pistol with as little effect, snatched his long rapier from its sheath, and thrust into the center of the misty attacker. The blade sang as it passed clear through, encountering no solid resistance, and Cain felt icy fingers grip his limbs, bestial talons tear his garments and the skin beneath. He dropped the useless sword and sought to grapple with his foe. It was like fighting a floating mist, the flying shadow armed with dagger-like claws. His savage blows met empty air. His leanly mighty arms, in whose grasp strong men had died, swept nothingness and clutched emptiness. Not was solid or real save the flaying, ape-like fingers with their crooked talons and the crazy eyes which burned into the shuddering depths of his soul. Cain realized that he was in a desperate plight indeed. Already his garments hung in tatters, and he bled from a score of deep wounds. But he never flinched, and the thought of flight never entered his mind. He had never fled from a single foe, 
and had the thought occurred to him, he would have flushed with shame. He saw no help for it now, but that his form should lie there beside the fragments of the other victim. But the thought held no terrors for him. His only wish was to give as good an account of himself as possible before the end came, and if he could, inflict some damage on his unearthly foe. There, above the dead man's torn body, man fought with demon, under the pale light of a rising moon, with all the advantages with the demon, save one, and that one was enough to overcome the others. For if abstract hate may bring into material substance a ghostly thing, may not courage, equally abstract, form a concrete weapon to combat that ghost? Cain fought with his arms, and his hands, and his feet, and he was aware at last that the ghost began to give back before him, and the fearful slaughter changed to screams of baffled fury. For man's only weapon is courage that flinches not from the gates of hell itself, and against such not even the legions of hell can stand. Of this Cain knew nothing. He only knew that the talons which tore and rended him seemed to grow weaker and wavering, that a wild light grew and grew in the horrible eyes. And reeling and grasping, he rushed in, grappled the thing at last, and threw it, and as they tumbled about on the moor, it writhed and lapped his limbs like a serpent of smoke. His flesh crawled, and his hair stood on end, for he began to understand its gibbering. He did not hear and comprehend as a man hears and comprehends the speech of a man, but the frightful secrets it imparted in whisperings and yammerings and screaming silences sank fingers of ice into his soul, and he knew. 2. The old hut of Ezra the miser stood by the road in the midst of the swamp, half screened by the sullen trees which grew about it. The walls were rotting the roof crumbling, and great pallid and green fungus monsters clung to it and writhed about the doors and windows as if seeking to peer within. The trees leaned above it, and their gray branches intertwined so that it crouched in semi-darkness like a monstrous dwarf over whose shoulder ogres leer. The road which wound down into the swamp among the rotting stumps and rank hummocks and scummy snake-haunted pools and bogs crawled past the hut, Many people passed that way these days, but few saw old Ezra, save glimpses of a yellow face peering through the fungus-screened windows, itself like an ugly fungus. Old Ezra the miser partook much of the quality of the swamp, for he was gnarled and bent and sullen. His fingers were like clutching parasitic plants, and his locks hung like drab moss above eyes trained to the murk of the swamplands. His eyes were like a dead man's, yet hinted of depths abysmal and loathsome as the dead lakes of the swamplands. These eyes gleamed now at the man who stood in front of his hut. This man was tall and gaunt and dark. His face was haggard and claw-marked, and he was bandaged of arm and leg. Somewhat behind this man stood a number of villagers. Are you Ezra of the Swamp Road? I? And what you want of me? Where is your cousin Gideon? the maniac youth who abode with you. Gideon? I? He wandered away into the swamp and never came back. No doubt he lost his way and was set upon by wolves or died in a quagmire or was struck by an adder. How long ago? Over a year. I, hark ye, Ezra the miser, 
Soon after your cousin's disappearance, a countryman, coming home across the moors, was set upon by some unknown fiend and torn to pieces, and thereafter it became death to cross the moors. First men of the countryside, then strangers who wandered over the fen, fell into the clutches of this thing. Many men have died since the first one. Last night I crossed the moors and heard the flight and pursuing of another victim, a stranger who knew not the evil of the moors. Ezra the miser, it was a fearful thing, for the wretch twice broke from the fiend, terribly wounded, and each time the demon caught him and dragged him down again. At last he fell dead at my feet, done to death in a manner that would freeze the statue of a saint. The villagers moved restlessly and murmured to each other, and old Ezra's eyes shifted fruitively, yet the somber expression of Solomon Cain never altered and his condor-like stare seemed to transfix the miser. I, I, muttered old Ezra hurriedly, a bad thing, a bad thing. Yet, why do you tell this thing to me? I, a bad thing. Hearken further, Ezra. The fiend came out of the shadows, and I fought with it over the body of its victim. I, how I overcame it, I know not, for the battle was hard and long, but the powers of good and light were on my side, which are mightier than all the powers of hell. At last I was stronger, and it broke from me and fled, and I followed to no avail, yet before it fled it whispered to me a monstrous truth. Old Ezra started, stared wildly, seemed to shrink into himself. Nay, why tell me this, he muttered. I returned to the village and told my tale, said Cain, for I knew that now I had the power to rid the moors of its curse forever. Ezra, come with us. Where? gasped the miser. To the rotting oak on the moors. Ezra reeled as though struck. He screamed incoherently and turned to flee. On an instant, at Cain's sharp order, two brawny villagers sprang forward and seized the miser. They twisted the dagger from his withered hand and pinioned his arms, shuddering as their fingers encountered his clammy flesh. Cain motioned them to follow, and turning, strawed up the trail, followed by the villagers, who found their strength taxed to the utmost in their task of bearing their prisoner along. Through the swamp they went and out, taking a little-used trail which led them up over the low hills and out on the moors. The sun was sliding down the horizon, and old Ezra stared at it with bulging eyes, stared as if he could not gaze enough. Far out on the moors, reared up the great oak, like a gibbet, now only a decaying shell. There, Solomon Cain halted. Old Ezra writhed in his captors grasped and made inarticulate noises. Over a year ago, Solomon Cain said, you, fearing that your insane cousin Gideon would tell men of your cruelties to him, brought him away from the swamp by the very trail by which we came, and murdered him here in the night. Ezra cringed and snarled, you cannot prove this lie. Cain spoke a few words to an agile villager. The youth clambered up the rotting bowl of the tree, and from a crevice, high up, dragged something that fell with a clatter at the feet of the miser. Ezra went limp with a terrible shriek. The object was a man's skeleton, the skull cleft. You, how knew you this? You were Satan, gibbered old Ezra. The thing I fought last night told me this thing as we reeled in battle, and I followed it to this tree. For the fiend is Gideon's ghost. Ezra shrieked again and fought savagely. You knew, said Cain somberly. You knew what things did these deeds. You feared the ghost of the maniac, 
And that is why you chose to leave his body on the fen instead of concealing it in the swamp. For you knew the ghost would haunt the place of his death. He was insane in life, and in death he did not know where to find his slayer, else he had come to you in your hut. He hates no man but you, but his mazed spirit cannot tell one man from another, and he slays all, lest he let his killer escape. Yet he will know you and rest in peace forever after. Hate hath made his ghost a solid thing that can rend and slay, and though he feared you terribly in life, in death he fears you not at all. Cain halted and glanced at the sun. All this I had from Gideon's ghost, in his yammerings and his whisperings and his shrieking silences. Not but your death will lay that ghost. Ezra listened in breathless silence, and Cain pronounced the words of his doom. A hard thing it is, said Cain somberly, to sentence a man to death in cold blood in such a manner as I have in mind. But you must die that others may live, and God knoweth you deserve death. You shall not die by noose, bullet, or sword, but at the talons of him you slew, for naught else will satiate him. At these words, Ezra's brain shattered. His knees gave way, and he fell groveling and screaming for death, begging them to burn him at the stake, to flay him alive. Cain's face was set like death, and the villagers, the fear rousing their cruelty, bound the screeching wretch to the oak tree, and one of them bade him make his peace with God. But Ezra made no answer, shrieking in a high, shrill voice with unbearable monotony. Then the villager would have struck the miser across the face, but Cain stayed him. Let him make his peace with Satan, whom he is more like to meet, said the Puritan grimly. The sun is about to set. Loose his cords, so that he may work loose by dark, since it is better to meet death free and unshackled than bound like a sacrifice. As they turned to leave, old Ezra yammered and gibbered unhuman sounds, and then fell silent, staring at the sun with terrible intensity. They walked away across the fen, and Cain flung a last look at the grotesque form bound to the tree, seeming in the uncertain light like a great fungus growing to the bowl. And suddenly the miser screamed hideously, Death! Death! There are skulls in the stars! Life was good to him, though he was gnarled and churlish and evil, Cain sighed. Mayhap God has a place for such souls where fire and sacrifice may cleanse them of their dross as fire cleans the forest or fungus things, yet my heart is heavy within me. Nay, sir, one of the villagers spoke. You have done but the will of God, and good alone can come of this night's deeds. Nay, answered Cain heavily, I know not, I know not. The sun had gone down, and night spread with amazing swiftness, as if great shadows came rushing down from unknown voids to cloak the world with hurrying darkness. Through the thick night came a weird echo, and the men halted and looked back the way they had come. Nothing could be seen. The moor was an ocean of shadows, and the tall grass about them bent in long waves before a faint wind, breaking the deathly stillness with breathless murmurings. Far away, the red disk of the moon rose over the fin, and for an instant, a grim silhouette was etched blackly against it. A shape came flying across the face of the moon, a bent, grotesque thing whose feet seemed scarcely to touch the earth. And close behind came a thing like a flying shadow, a nameless, shapeless horror. A moment, the racing twain stood out boldly against the moon. 
Then they merged into one unnameable formless mass and vanished in the shadows. Far across the fen sounded a single shriek of terrible laughter. End of Skulls in the Stars by Robert E. Howard Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this spooky episode of Oleander Book Club. Ooh. Another one of these coming up uh, right after this, and then probably we should have the uh, weekly episode. So look forward to that on Tuesday or uh, Thursday or Friday, and we'll see you in November. All right, we'll talk to you then, everyone. Remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Seriously, we could use some positive reviews on, on iTunes. If uh, e- Even if you just think it's a four-star, anything's better than the stuff that we've gotten. That's kind of garbage. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Have a good one.